So typically an executive order, someone will come out and say, like, I deem this to be true. Like, this is now yeah. what we're doing. What Biden is saying is, like, he woke up one morning and was eating his Lucky Charms and said, here are some thoughts I have. <laughs> here are 72 thoughts I have. Yeah. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hello, good friend. I see you still haven't made it home. How is it no. sleeping on other people's beds for three weeks? <laughs> you know, it's it's been it's been nice, but I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. But it's not time quite yet. So this is my last day in Lake Tahoe recording from the brother and sister-in-law's abode very appreciative of their uh podcast studio shout out for me yeah shout out shout out um heading to the bay area a little later today and then we're there for a few more days then heading back to denver so it's still not it's still not time can you say hi to chamath for me sure perfect perfect <laughs> skippy says hello that's tell all him that's, i love his I'm value say. investing i mean just tell him i'm so impressed uh, i also oh, like wonderful. how his uh Oh, this is a, a little rant, but you saw his uh, angle letter where he did 11 years worth of performance and compared it to 10 years worth of performance for Buffett, and then he got what? arrested for it. Are you familiar with cherry picking? <laughs> oh, I'm very familiar. <laughs> All right, we better, uh, yeah. we better actually get yeah. to it. <laughs> I want to kick us off with a quiz. I love you quizzes. Okay. I love being that? humiliated in front of our international audience. It's, it's gonna be this is gonna be great. This one is guess which company. And I'm, I'm gonna yeah. give you some uh, some hints. Okay, Pool Corporation. I mean, come on, man. At least you gotta wait till the end. You gotta wait till the end. Okay. Go. So I'm gonna declare this company the official indicator of a bubble. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna call yeah. it that. That's that's the Dougal's call out. Yeah. So few facts. This this company was founded in 1996 in California to take advantage of the internet boom by some uh, some MBA students. Okay, which was basically what was happening all throughout the, the yeah. mid to late 90s. I got these business school students. They raised three rounds in three years, and then 1999 they said, "Let's make our dreams come true and go public." IPO. Yeah. Right. Yeah. IPO goes to the moon. Not quite to the moon, but it went pretty high. So it had about a 6x return, right, until the height of the internet bubble, and then bursts. Like the, with the force of a thousand kings, this thing bursts. Goes down by 97%. Okay, so, so sure. far it sounds like many other organizations, right? Yeah, it sounds like something, a stock you'd like to pick up. Oh, I tried. <laughs> so then, so basically the stock does almost nothing, except when it's bubble time. <laughs> Uh, it goes about it goes up about another six x before the great financial crisis. So for a few years, does nothing. Goes up another six x. Then that time goes down by about eighty percent. Then hangs out for another few years. And then between two thousand fifteen ish, two thousand sixteen until now, it's gone up by nine or ten x. Ooh. And yeah. then last week, there's an announcement: getting acquired. Well, I mean, I, so... I told you nothing about what they do because at the moment I tell you anything about what they do, you know who it is. But do you have any guesses just from that? trying to think who got acquired last week no so i'll just tell you what's going on in my head i don't have a great guess for you but like i wonder if they ever really had a product i'll bet you in like the 1999 time a product or a service they really didn't and so i'm actually amazed they made it past that first bubble to the second bubble just the staying power is pretty impressive this is software i assume is that a good guess yes because every company in the world has software well well played <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What is it? Okay, now I'll give you a little clue about what they do. They have been affiliated for most of their their lives very closely with the USPS, the Postal Service. I have no idea. Okay, if you want to mail something, you know, but, but way back in the olden days, stamps.com, boom, stamps.com, crushing it, crushing it. I, so stamps. I never followed the stock. I mean, oh, what? So, no, like I never followed the stock. <laughs> you and ninety nine percent of the rest of the world have never followed. The <laughs> yeah, stock. exactly. But it's kind of like stamps.com is similar to that, like uh, pets.com, you know, that was always thrown out, except it's yeah, stuck oh around, yeah. which is different. But it's it's the stock that if you're watching a 
I don't know, like an early 2000s movie and they talk about how their uncle got rich. They're always like, they bought stamps.com. Like it's like, a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like the, I don't know, the meme around the internet bubble. But they're getting acquired for a few billion dollars. I guess I get in like 99, everyone was like, oh, the whole world is moving to the internet. And like, oh, the ability to do postage online is like this novel concept. So I get the 6X at that time. But the rest of the stuff, like USPS, UPS, all those websites are pretty solid now. It's very easy to print postage. Like, why is there a 10X run up right now? What does stamps.com offer that you can't get somewhere else? So I I don't know. I've read almost nothing about stamps.com ever. But I'm going to give you some just speculation. Is the, The speculation I can think of is that given the last 20 years or so, like what's been hot around tech and e-commerce is that around these bubble times, e-commerce sites are also like shipping goes up generally. And so therefore stamps.com also goes up. I know they've made some acquisitions of the last few years. So they have like a little, they have like this little, uh, like shipping empire. Like (laughs) I guess that they have, (laughs) they're like $800 million in revenue. It's, it's interesting. So they've got something going on, but that's my only guess is that when when shipping goes up, they go up. Oh, I mean, Let's just have fun where we're like armchair experts here on a stock we haven't researched. But eight hundred million in revenue and probably like seven hundred and ninety nine million of that goes to actually buying the postage that is required. Like there can't be a great margin on this. I don't go to steps.com and pay more money to ship a package than I would at UPSS.com, right? Do I? I don't know what you do. So only only you can <laughs> I don't do anything. Who acquired them? It's a private equity firm. Well, that explains it. It kind of does make sense. They're sitting on too much money. I mean, they're just sitting on too much capital. So this is not a half bad P&L here. So if if I look at their trailing 12 months, $795 million in revenue. Their gross profit, $614 million. So, I mean, that's pretty solid. Their, Their net income, so after all the... The nonsense, right? Is well, I just lost it. One hundred ninety-six million. I mean, it's a it's a decent business. I don't I don't believe any of those numbers. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. They three hundred thirty-seven million dollars in operating cash flow from the last twelve months. There's this is like a private equity company's dream. No, no. There's a lot to like. I just don't understand how. Yeah, there's, there's almost no like. debt. There's lots of cash on hand. Revenues are skyrocketing relative to the last 10 years. Uh, Wow. A little share dilution going on. I think we just wrap by saying that could be an interesting 10K to read because the financials are way more solid than you would expect. You wouldn't expect it, I think. And that's the, so it's interesting. Yeah, so uh, there's a few more things to talk about, I think, if we're ready to transition. First is... uh, What if we're not ready to transition? (laughs) We are. Okay, we are. (laughs) First is uh, we hired... Well, we consulted with our graduate intern, social media consultant, and she told us that we needed to give stickers to the listeners. We have uh, the world's greatest contest coming up if you review the pod and shoot us a screenshot via Twitter or Gmail, we're going to shoot you a sticker. If you send listener mail into the pod, we're going to shoot you a sticker. We obviously need you to send your address information. If you take Dougal's, you know the itchy and scratchy theme st- song from The Simpsons? Oh, yeah. Don't you think we should have one of the li- listeners who's talented musically re-record that? With Skippy and Dougal's, like the the Skippy and Dougal's show, like wouldn't that be totally sick? You've gone buckwild crazy. <laughs> well, if a listener wants to do that, we're gonna send you lots of stickers. Jokes aside, we did secure some stickers. They're pretty sweet, three inch by three inch uh, podcast logo. We'd love to hook you up. Uh, shoot us an uh, email at skippydougal's at gmail or hit us up on Twitter DMs uh, at skippydougal's, and uh, we'd love to hook you up with some merch. We appreciate the listener engagement for sure. Cool. All right. So now we have China Biden 
healthcare costs, education costs. Where do you want to go, Dougals? Let's start with Biden because you were getting Biden fatigue. So I took a little break. I, I don't think I did, actually. I think I'm pretty yeah, sure I, I brought this yeah. up every week. But uh, this time, though, this time he's not coming with the I want to spend a trillion dollars. So that's good. You know, I want to interrupt you for one point. I just want to say, hello, Mr. President. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We appreciate you taking all our suggestions and running with it. Uh, we also really <laughs> like your staff. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for the interlude. <laughs> so this week, he he signs an executive. Technically, it's called an executive order. I'm going to call it an executive non-order. Because <laughs> have you looked through this thing or looked at the summary of it? I read an article or two, yeah. uh, but my fatigue is still hurting me on this yeah. front. So there are 72 initiatives in this, which sounds aggressive uh, at face value and is quite aggressive. The non-aggressive part of it, though, is that there's no order in it. So typically an executive order, someone will come out and say, like, I deem this to be true. Like, this is now yeah. what we're doing. What Biden is saying is, like, he woke up one morning and was eating his Lucky Charms and said, <laughs> here are some thoughts I have. <laughs> here are 72 thoughts i have yeah, here are 72 thoughts by jack handy so <laughs> i'm going to give just a few flavors of this from a from a directional standpoint as to where his brain is it's of what he would like to be true i think there's some interesting flavor in there um, but it is fairly random at the same time yeah. it seems like so it, it seemed you, like the, not all the 72 bullets like directly tied together or were like on the same subjects even, which is really bizarre. Well, they are that they all had to do with America. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> so, uh, so he's encouraging and this is everything is like, I'm encouraging. I hope that you, it would be nice for, right? That's like, <laughs> that's like how they all start. So he's encouraging. I love a pay raise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. 400 grand is really not doing it anymore. Uh, he's encouraging the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to ban non-compete agreements, which is effectively how California works right now. His purpose is he's saying we need workers to be more economically mobile and to be able to make more wages. And if you're what he brings up specifically is around fast food workers. And he's saying you can if you leave McDonald's now, you can't work a Burger King. Yeah. Wait, hold on. That's a thing. Fast food workers this can't. Is, this is what this is what Biden brings up. He said something like, "Are there trade secrets in the patty?" That's the question that he asks, because he's saying like, "You're you're you're telling me I can't go get this other job where let's say I make eleven bucks an hour here across the street if I can make twelve bucks an hour." Biden's saying like, "You should be able to go do that," but there's there's something in the in the employment agreement that says non compete or something like that. I I have not researched fast food employment agreements, but this seems to be the case. So that, that's what he's after. Okay. That's, a, that's one example. Another one is he wants greater scrutiny of tech mergers um, and especially uh, what are deemed quote unquote killer acquisitions, which is one where you just buy a company because it's going to be competitive. So Facebook, Instagram, right? An example of that. Yeah, I know. Mr. President, that's what I said last week. Yep. Nice work on this. I appreciate you signing this executive order there, with there that. I made one of the 72 bullets. Yeah, well played. <laughs> yeah. It, relatedly, he wants hearing aids to be over the counter. Wait, you're not joking right now? No. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's in the same no, that's in the same document. <laughs> yes. Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. This is the greatest thing. He he he's requesting that there are new rules around when made or like when made in the USA as a stamp can go on beef. But not on beef, right? Like on the well, packaging. Like the, on the, of yes, beef? Like, <laughs> on, on the packaging. Yeah. <laughs> He wants to decrease shipping and freight costs. And then he's really looking out for the people because he thinks that it's ludicrous. And I, you will too, when uh, airlines will not refund your lost baggage fees. And so he wants airlines to do that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, okay. I mean, <laughs> hearing aids, baggage fees, <laughs> like, what? tech mergers. It is. There's 72 of these. <laughs> The baggage fees what really threw me for a loop. So, like, if I go and lose my luggage, and how does this work exactly? What does Biden want to change? I think he he wants to require that air like airlines have to refund that. Um, so it'd be something that would I guess the FAA or whatever would would have to have it in their literature. Whoever like dictates it. The there is. So I'm joking about all this. I think there are a couple broad themes that he has generally. Those broad themes are. He wants America to be more competitive. 
So in addition to tech mergers, he talked about bank mergers, which I'm not sure that that's a real thing he has to worry about, but regardless, but he talked about bank mergers. So he wants competition. And the other one is he, he wants more consumer friendly practices like that. It, that's, that's what he's broadly after. And so while I was joking about the, you know, the, the airline refund thing, it just, it kind of falls in that category of he's saying there are some ridiculous things that gouge Americans from a price perspective and we yep. don't need to do that. So like the concentration in the freight and shipping industries, he's saying, look, that ends up passing along costs because of pricing power, et cetera, to, to our consumers. So we don't want that. So it is, it is a, like, it's a fairly random list, but thematically, I think you can tie it to competitive pressures um, and wanting to have more competitive market and consumer pricing, but it's still 72 initiatives in a non-order might not be the right way to go about it. I don't know. I'm not a political science expert, but, uh, but that's, that's what he was doing with his lucky charms. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Generally, there's some good themes in there. Probably uh, the the devil's always in the details when it comes to government regulation of business competition, right? I mean, it's tough to say. There's a fine line if you just talk shipping. There's a fine line where consolidation uh, reduces costs because of um, scale, and then at a certain point, you get towards monopolistic practices, which probably increases costs. So finding that uh, sweet spot is a tough thing. It's true that most of these. We're asking another government agency to look more closely into these practices and then develop new policies, which may have impacts here. Correct. So like, this is just going to be something that we talk about for the next six to 24 months. Exactly. Yeah. But that's what it is. Because in some cases, he's saying, look, over the next 45 days, can you bring back a plan? Yep. Stuff like that. And so, so there's, again, it's a non-order. So there's, there was, I don't think there's anything in here that says this is going to be true. It's, it's simply a, here are things that probably should be true. Uh, government agencies, can you go forth, be merry and bring me back plans? Yep. Yep. There Which will be the interesting. Hearing one, the hearing aid one, I think was specifically a selfish move on his part. Yeah, seriously. He, he's having problems getting doctor's notes. <laughs> so great. Well, so how do you think Biden would do if he was the president of China? Not great, to be honest. The last time that there was an old white man that was elected as president of China. <laughs> Seriously, stop it. It's too good. <laughs> <laughs> so Didi, right? The Chinese ride sharing company. Actually, I looked at the stock for the first time this week. You know why? Because I love it when things fall off a cliff. Um, I get excited when stocks go down like 80%. And this thing, I think it's only down 60% or so, but it's fallen off a cliff. I wonder why. I don't think it's even 60%. I think it's like 30%. Oh, come on. It's only been around for a hey, week. Hey, don't bring facts to this conversation. It IPO'd no, last no, week. No, it's no, way down. Yeah. And this was a highly anticipated IPO. I think the it's the largest since Alibaba, I think, from China. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It went public last week and immediately, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like, we're having yep. none of it. And this yep. gets back to the broader theme that we've discussed over the past pretty much since the beginning uh, around China and its crackdown. And it's only intensified. There was the a start. If you go back to I mean, you can go back even further than this. But from our conversations, you go back to the fall when our good friend Jack Ma was uh, it was recommended that he, uh, you know, take a little step back. And so for those who don't know, him. we did a whole podcast on like basically where is Jack Ma? And that was a that was a thing. And it was basically the start of this crackdown on, well, for several reasons. The Chinese government, Dougals, by the way, make, thanks for making me talk about China so much so I can never travel over there. They're, they're going to throw me in a prison for having. Um, <laughs> they're just waiting. Yeah, you are like, definitely I, I am on public some enemy list. number one. I haven't even said anything bad. I just would like them to have a little more free markets. But uh, so, yeah, we were looking for Jack Ma. We finally found him. But. They reduced his influence, it seems, greatly. He, they don't want uh, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates to be larger than the country, it seems. And with Didi, apparently, they never really wanted them to go public in the U.S. markets. Um, they, they don't have much desire for them to raise money over here. And so this is a whole mess, I think. It, it sounds like... Didi tried to please both their investors and the Chinese government and failed at both. And now they're um, seeing the consequences of that. Yeah. And, and it's for the, the market impact broadly, right, on all this China stuff. There are there's so many forces at work. And China's been over the past, I guess, if you Alibaba went public, what, in 2014, something like that. 
So during that time, even before then a bit, but especially during that time, these tech giants like Tencent and Alibaba have like done really well here. And so it's been viewed as a behemoth of a outside the US, you know, investment vehicle. And, and then starting, so if you go back last fall, we talked about the Jack Ma thing, right? Ant Group was going to be the largest IPO like ever or something. It was ever, just this yeah. huge financial uh, company. It didn't happen. And then you also had a Trump, as he was getting near the end of his presidency, came out and started blacklisting uh, Chinese firms uh, for two reasons. Um, one, he said that he might blacklist some because of because uh, they wouldn't hit our auditing requirements. And the other, he was saying that there were Chinese firms that were allegedly t- had too close ties to the Chinese military. Mm-hmm. And so from a security perspective, he blacklisted them. I personally got caught up in that hot mess, right? Because of my fantastic China mobile uh, investment. And I was like, let me me just dip a toe over here and someone cut my toe right off. Like, (laughs) like, did did not work out. And then more recently, uh, and and pop in if you have other examples here, but to throw out a few things that have happened uh, over the last few months, you mentioned Didi, which just happened. China is throwing out security concerns around, I'd say just like listings, foreign listings overall. Uh, And the way, are you familiar with VIEs? Mm. Yeah, I don't, there might be some way you pronounce it like VIs or Vs or something like that. But uh, variable interest entities is what that stands for. I didn't know this before I was looking into this, but uh, China apparently has some regulation that already makes it difficult for their own companies to list overseas. And so the way that Chinese companies have been doing this is they'll set up a shell company and that shell company will have access to like they'll say something like let me i don't know if this is real but let me give you an example it'll be like 10 cent american co right is the shell company yeah. and 10 10 cent american co uh has the right to have a hundred percent of the profit that's created by yeah. 10 cent and then what if you want to buy 10 cent the american depository receipt if you want to buy that here, you're actually buying stock in that holding company, not stock in yeah. Tencent. And so like, that's a way they've gotten around it. And so now China's trying to go after, after those. Another example is, and this is, again, I'm just, I know you keep bringing up, you're like, Terrence, stay out of China. And I keep trying to buy visas to get over there, trying to like bribe my way in. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a company that I bought for the first time last year and then re-upped this year, thank goodness, uh, that's a tall education group. Uh, tomorrow advancing life which is just i mean it's just wonderful um they're like a a tutoring k-12 education company and earlier this year back in march china came out and said this is this actually gets back to your lying flat thing i think the the government heard that they heard you talking about lying flat and they're like this is a great idea we shouldn't educate our kids as much (laughs) and so they basically came out and said that chinese parents are trying too hard to keep their kids educated and so tutoring shouldn't really be a thing and we're going to come out later this year with strong regulation. They haven't announced what that is yet, but it sent Tal Education Group quite a darling of a stock from 90 to 20. Um, so it's dropped like nearly 80% in the past three months. So it just, it, they keep coming out with all these, these different either regulations or threats of regulation that are throwing things for quite a loop on the back of us also wanting to delist Chinese companies. So America is saying no to China, China is saying no to China, and I'm just stuck in the middle. I'm just an innocent, bystander friends you see what happens when you follow Dougal's stock picks over here like just getting crushed that's why this is not investment advice yeah exactly Man, Sorry, i, I don't know rant. no it's all good on the china piece i don't know that i fully understand i can't claim that i fully understand the government or a lot of things over there but i don't really see what's so bad about raising money internationally i think that benefits companies that benefit your people and your economy and your tax base so i i don't really follow this the jack ma piece i got in a way it was like he was he was becoming a icon for that region and i don't think that was thought of kindly i don't even know who the founder of dd is like and i don't particularly care i think she's a like a pretty formidable figure anything if i'm if i'm thinking about the right company the right yeah. before because when travis the old, the former CEO of Uber tried to go over to China. She basically did like a Utumbo, you know, finger shake. And he Which was straight great. out of there and just bought, I think they Uber basically just invested in Didi and then got out. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the, the three pieces of rationale that I've 
read, and you, there's always stuff behind this, but one is what you brought up. There will be no Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg of China is like one mm -hmm. theme. A second one seems to be around just for competitive purposes, not wanting to benefit to financially benefit Americans specifically, I think this much while they, they might talk about overseas broadly, it's really about the US not wanting to benefit financially American investors and whatnot all that much. And the third whoa, is around cybersecurity. Whoa, whoa. Concerns. Sorry. I got I got to jump in on the point too. That is pretty rich, man. That that assumes that like all stocks go up. Like I mean, uh you could be robbing Americans of money if the stock fails. There's no guarantee that this is I mean, there's risk associated with investing in businesses. Am I crazy? Or is Didi such a slam dunk that it's obviously I mean, not cuz look what happened to the stock in the past week because of the yeah, regulatory concerns. So one on the DD piece, that one wasn't, we didn't give the rationale before. That was not just because of regulatory concerns. China came out and said they forced organizations to take the app out of their app stores. Yeah, true. true. So like, that's like a direct, you, you cannot get the app right anywhere. I mean, that's a bigger, that's a, it, it just shows you the, the power they have, but I hear you with the, not all stocks go up, but these ones that are like the big ones that are trying to go public over here or like DD, that's a, it may not go up, right? I'm not saying the stock's going to go up, but they're, they're like big time IPOs. And so even if it doesn't go up, the people that are backing it are going to make buku wuku. Buku wuku. Yeah. Look it up. It's an investing term. Oh man. Term. Oh, man. Uh... Yeah. I mean, so, so anyway, yeah. So China getting hit from the, the U.S. saying things, from China saying things, the threat of regulation, and then killing me on the education front. Right. So, you know, I I love a good falling knife. And uh, so I saw the buzz around Didi and uh, decided to pull the stock and was like, it, whatever. So it's down, um, yeah, 30 plus percent. Uh, not enough to get me excited, but I, I decided to do some research to see if, if maybe it falls 80 to 90% if I'd be interested. It's still not profitable, man. Like, I can't even really get excited about this. It's this well, it's high growth. one. Yeah, I mean, one day we're going to make some money. I, I just don't know about these business models. Show me that you actually make money and do it on a consistent basis, and maybe I'll be interested. Stamps.com. Josh, can we talk about education since we bought a towel education group? Yeah, let's do it. We got awesome listener mail. Um, again, I think this is from Donald Kent. Um, it's out on the Twitter. We talked about the Mark Andreessen conversation with Patrick O'Sonnesy last week. And uh, he sent over a really awesome article from the New York Times from 2015. I, I can't do this article justice, but if you're interested, uh, check it out on, on the Twitter. It does. It basically breaks education into three tiers. Uh, your world's top universities that accept less than 10% of applicants, call it the Ivies and a few others. And then your public universities that are certainly the world's elite, but also have a mandate to educate a broader range of people. Typically, things that start with University of, could be University of North Carolina, could be University of California, whatever the case. And then... This third bucket, which is less prestigious institutions that are more, their mandate is to educate people. And so the pricing dynamics of those three tiers vary greatly because of their mandates, which is a huge complicating factor to this. And then on top of that, I want to talk a little bit about the economics of, of investing in education for that third tier of university that is more about educating i'll call it your more common individual the graduation rates are typically low typically They're less terrible. than 50 percent. and uh there's a million factors for that i mean a lot of those folks just might have more going on in their day-to-day -day life on top of maybe not having like the same studious foundation that someone that is accepted into an ivy league institution would have had to develop to get into that Ivy League education. So there's ways to attack that. But generally, the point I wanted to bring on that front is if you find a way to get basically every um, adult that you find to graduate from a post-secondary um, education, the return on investment of that is roughly 15% per year. So if you spend 100 bucks on education, 
And again, this is according to this article, your tax base for the next 30 to 40 years after that individual graduates from college grows for that individual person's like salary and everything else at 15% a year, which grows your tax base, which allows you to reinvest in things that are meaningful to your local or state government. Um, I just don't feel like that's talked about enough. And Dougals, I hope I'm articulating that correctly. But I wanted to highlight that point first and foremost before we talk about tier one and tier two. Yeah, and it's what people broadly that are very supportive of education kind of say at the high level is that the problem with politics and education is that people are looking for their next election cycle. Like they're they're saying, what's the short-term gain that I can get such that I get reelected? And education investment is more of a long-term gain. Because you you have to invest in it, and then twenty years later, you know, you're not 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 quite that long, but like you have to yeah. you have to invest in it, get the changes made, then people have to go to school, then people have to get the better jobs, right? It takes quite a while to start to see the return, but the return is definitely there. You have to educate the population, and we've gone from in the U.S. we've gone from top tier like numero uno to second tier um, when it with regard to where we are in education. So yeah. I think you're articulating that really well. The pricing dynamics are crazy between those those types of organizations. And you could even break those tiers up even more if you wanted to. Oh, you absolutely could. So first and foremost, I just think that needs to be heard and reiterated. Like, it's very easy for, I'll talk about a state governor. It's very easy when a state governor faces a financial crisis on a yearly basis to pull money out of uh, post-secondary education. That's an easy cut to make. In my eyes, we are, we're consistently talking about government spending with some guide towards uh, return on investment, right? That's one of the worst places that you can cut for the long-term health of your state. So I just, if there's In- misinformation about that, it's your job as listeners of this show to squash that because it's yeah. just ridiculous. In- we need a... In- some Correct of these uh, some of these public schools, quote unquote, public schools are effectively becoming private schools. Absolutely, they are because there's no. The, I mean, you're not public if you don't get any support from your yeah, state. Exactly, exactly. The and so the uh, the pricing dynamics, not not between the, the tiers, but just for tuition, is so it's it gets really complex. But we we're not setting ourselves up for success. I'll tell you that much. Let's talk. Can we talk pricing dynamics among the three tiers? Yeah, sure. So that top tier is an entire it's in an entirely different stratosphere than the rest of the institutions. One, there's already high demand for the good they provide, uh, largely because of the name and reputation that comes with that. In most cases, that name and reputation leads to an average additional yearly income of around $20,000, which speaks in part to the additional supply. So in a tier one institution, but for simplicity here, we're just going to talk about Ivy's. If you raise the tuition, it actually, in a lot of cases, increases the demand. There's already high demand for your product. And then as price goes up, there's this human psychology that goes, oh gosh, if Columbia is, if they just raise their price by $10,000, it must be worth even more. It's like and Louis then Vuitton. The, yeah, right? And then the people that go to Columbia, either one, come from really solid, wealthy backgrounds, so the cost doesn't effectively matter, or if you come from average to below average incomes levels, now all those institutions, because their endowments are so great, they're going to cover the cost of tuition for you. So in in that fully elite world, the pricing dynamics almost don't matter at all. Like it's almost completely inconsequential. You either have the means to do it or it's free. And even if you take on a little debt to do it, you're going to make more money for the next 40 years of your life to pay down that debt really, really quickly. The problem as I see it, or the challenge, not is that Americans typically think of like that Ivy League model as the model for education without realizing how different it is for your Ivies than it is for your public schools than it is for your, I don't know, more community college type schools. And the other, the other point that sits in there is you were talking about how it's inconsequential to the, I'll call it the end user, right, to the student. And they're the students that get the most benefit. It's, it's also with within what you were saying there exactly, because of all right? the sources of funding. So you get the most benefit and you need it the least. Yes. I'm just fascinated by this. And I listen, I, I've talked too much because I know you're an expert in this space, Dougals. But like this stuff, I could talk 
for hours and hours, but I'll spare our listeners on that. It's a really great article. There's also another great article that came out that talks about student debt. There's a film and video arts uh, program at Columbia where the average student leaves with about 200K in debt and their average salary is about 30K. And so there's an interesting debate on those dynamics. Yeah, the thing we can transition after this, if you want, the thing that I wish that people thought of differently within education when it comes to the financial side is when you think about the cost per, it's often viewed as cost per year, like tuition per year, tuition per semester, quarter, whatever, Mm -hmm. tuition per credit. I wish they thought about this as the cost per degree or cost per like dollar of salary after, because it's that going back to the point you brought up, the completion rates for some of the the less effective schools, I'll yeah, just call yeah. them, are so low that you could say that their tuition is, let's say it's a quarter of what the tuition of a different school is. But if your graduation rate is a 10th, and so you just end up leaving with no degree and you're in debt, then your cost of degree, it, it changes so much. And I, I just wish that people thought about the economics in that way. Or the other thing is the cost per dollar of salary afterwards or whatever unit you decide to choose. If you don't graduate, obviously that doesn't shift either. It's, it's, a, it's a different way to think about this. And it's so important for people to think about it that way. Otherwise you end up just spending money on nothing effectively. All the time, right? And so the psychologically, it's really hard to think you might be the human that might not graduate, but I'd say that student that maybe goes to school for a year or two, takes out debt to do it, doesn't end up graduating and never sees their salary increase. They they almost spend the money without getting the benefit, right? And that's probably the the toughest investment and where the, the student gets, I'll say, screwed the most. I mean, yep. that's course. But that's the type of stuff where for that tier three education that's critically important for our society's growth and our even our economic growth, it would be really unfortunate if those uh, costs were rising rapidly, and I'm sure they have been. That's the type of stuff where there needs to be a better safety net, I think, for everyone to allow those students to take the plunge and then hopefully successfully finish the degree because the benefits are enormous there. Yeah, we could talk about this forever. It's, yeah, it's so, so on that point, hit us up. Tell us if you like this conversation. We can uh, we can bring on guests. Uh, Douglas and I both find this fascinating, and we could definitely do a deep dive on education. There's so many layers of the onion to peel back here. So I think that means we might be going to healthcare, Douglas. Let's transition to another broken system. <laughs> we uh, this is also part of the Mark Andreessen conversation. Uh, just wanted to follow up here. Um, because there's some really interesting stuff. So the Wall Street Journal did an awesome article on this. Um, I'll hit you with just a couple facts and then you can tell me to be quiet. Here's a breakdown of how much it costs to get an angioplasty and stent by county for select counties across the US. You ready for this? You, you want to turn this into a quiz? No, not really. I don't know if I can name multiple counties. <laughs> so I, I just don't, I don't no, feel like being that I'll give you the county. You give me the cost. All right. Los Angeles, California. How much do you think this thing costs? 12000 Uh 12000 is almost right. Looks like the low end of the spectrum is maybe fifteen, seventeen. But if you go to the wrong hospital or have the wrong insurance, you can have the exact same procedure performed. Exact same. I'm talking same amount of, same bags of IV fluid and everything. Same amount of meals. And you could pay $125,000. Holy matrimony. The, the, the range varies from like fifteen dollars to $125,000. <laughs> when is a range not a range? <laughs> so uh, let me give... Let me give some background and some basic facts. So this is, I don't know who led this legislation, but I absolutely love it. Starting January of 2021, it was mandated that hospitals release this data uh, before this data hasn't even been available. So there was no way to even reconcile. So six months ago, you're talking about. Yeah. 
there's a couple startups which gosh i might go work for these this just sounds fascinating that are basically turning into many healthcare analytics companies to digest this data and then try and make sense of it and i would assume so when it's this inefficient the potential business case gets kind of exciting because if you could tell the patient in los angeles hey go to this hospital and pay fifteen thousand instead of go to this hospital and pay 125 and you say and i'm going to take 10 percent of your cost savings or something like that could be monumental so i'm also intrigued by this space let me give you a few more just figures here in terms of different counties los angeles is the worst in terms of in terms of range Franklin, Ohio is the best in some ways. All the hospitals in Franklin, Ohio charge $39,945 for angioplasty and stent. So no so, chance of savings, but you know that you're getting gouged. Like yeah, at there's least no you range. Going there's no range, but you're getting ripped off. So like better and worse, all at the same point. Hartford, Connecticut, the range is almost $0. I assume that means that insured negotiated this really well to like 60k uh philadelphia pennsylvania is a range from maybe 2k to 25k i mean this these things are in crazy san bernardino california is similar to los angeles 15k to 100k how do we even explain that you do the exact same thing with the potentially the same doctors and the bills vary this greatly it's so ridiculous i don't know i don't have any I, I can't, I, I've got nothing. Our healthcare system is just nonsensical and like the, the way that it operates and the, whenever something isn't transparent, it always takes advantage of the, the people with the least amount of uh, information. Right. And I, yes. it just, I don't know, gets me all angry inside. The I'm like that little red guy and in inside out. <laughs> that movie is sad, by the way, if you have kids, uh, the main tilt of this article was kind of headed that direction Dougals. it was saying that they're able to look at this data and figure out that cash payers the uninsured americans which is 11 percent of the country representing almost 30 million people are typically the ones that get screwed most i don't know that that's a huge size but again like is that the right clientele to be trying to exploit uh probably not no so in in Shelby County, Tennessee, if you look at a complex emergency room visit, uh, the billing costs typically range between about 500 to about 5,500 bucks. At certain hospitals, the non-insured rate falls right in the middle of that range. At other hospitals, like St. Francis Hospital in Memphis, the range for insured payers was between basically 500 and 1,500 bucks. But if you pay cash, you're going to pay almost $3,000. Wow. That 2X? Yeah. Yep. 2X. 2X? And you, and you have one-tenth? Like, you probably have a tenth <laughs> of the disposable income, and you're paying twice as much? I know, man. I, I know. Um, crazy stuff. Anyway, uh, this article, let me give you the shout-out in the Wall Street Journal. Really good journalism. was called, Hospitals Often Charge Uninsured People the Highest P Prices, New Data Show. It's in the health section of the Wall Street Journal. It came out July 6th. Uh, it's worth checking out. Is it okay if we wrap with just a, a rant, just a, a spine in my thorn? Or no, that's not how it goes. <laughs> the thorn in my side. <laughs> the, th the thorn in my side this week. I don't know why it really bothered me this week. But the yeah. definition of a bear market, I just don't like it. My issue. Okay. So, so uh, what I recognize, and I'm cool with this, I recognize that whatever definition we choose is going to have to be somewhat arbitrary. Like we, we have to, we have to pick some number and say that if the market falls by this, then we call it X, right? It's the use of the phrase bear market. I think that's a bigger deal. So today what we say is the market is a bear market. If it goes down by 20% from its last high, that's the definition of a bear market. I don't have an issue with the 20%, but I, like, I'm cool with what we call a correction. And I just feel like, that we should we should define a bear market not by the not just by the amount that it drops, but also by the speed at which it comes back or something, because it you can't compare like we basically we compare what happened in nineteen like ninety eight, right in a, a a quote unquote bear market that lasted a few months or in twenty twenty a quote unquote bear market that like lasted a few months we say that that's in the same realm as the Great Depression or 
the great financial crisis. And it like doesn't make any sense to me. I want to get your view on this because that, that thorn is just like really poking and I don't like it. Oh, I have thoughts. This is like the weakest rant I've ever heard. It's a nice, calm voice. Like, oh, I'm a little disgruntled. Oh, it's because, oh, because my eyes get big. <laughs> if if you, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like stay. I had to take a, you know, some meds before I started talking about it just to keep myself <laughs> at bay. We have, this is, this is handled, dude. We have the Great Depression is called the Great Depression. It's not called bear market number 23. Uh, the Great Financial Crisis is called the Great Financial Crisis. Like, no. Uh, okay. All right. Nope. Nope. All right. Now you got me going. <laughs> you got me going now. So where where the where this came from for me this week? I don't know why I got so tickled pink about it, but there's an article, another article in the Wall Street Journal that came out, which I, I think is like a you know well well written whatever. But it's basically the article is about um, how valuations, the size, the overvaluedness, doesn't necessarily dictate the length of a bear market or the depth of a bear market. Like that's what it's saying. So it was saying, if you look at like the shortest or the biggest bear markets or the longest, right? The smallest yeah. bear markets, they don't necessarily correlate to the highest PE or the highest Cape. And I, I like the theme of what the article was trying to say, but if you compare these bear markets, like it doesn't, they're not all really bear markets. Am I like, you, you can't compare what happened in 1998 to what happened in 2000. Like those aren't the same thing. Like I would actually say, that if you're saying that um, the overvaluation 1998 like didn't lead to a long bear market, it's like no, because that wasn't a bear market. Like you had this short-term correction. The bear market started in 2000. Ooh, okay, yeah, I'm ready to yell at you. All right, so oh, let's go. No, ding, ding, ding. when you when you try and tie the valuation, so I think there there could be multiple things you have beef with. One could be the steepness of the drop. So I'll call it the slope of the curve, right? Is it, did we head down for like two years to get to that 20% drop? Or did we head down for like three days to get to that 20% drop? But another thing you're trying in here is almost valuation. So we like to talk about Tokyo in the 90s, right? If, if the stock market gets so irrational that you go to a cape of 100, a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio of 100, which is the highest ever recorded in developed markets. I mean, just absolutely insane bubble, right? And then you go 20% down from that. That's a bear market. But the valuation is still like the second highest valuation in a developed market ever. So what's your beef here? Is it the definition, the 20%? Is it that you want some tied evaluation? Is it the slope of the curve? Is it all of the above? My issue is that I know you said that there are different terminologies like depressions, et cetera. I'd rather not call it a bear market. I think if you're using the word, if you're, if you're stating that something is happening with regard to the market at large, I feel like there would have to be something else. It could be the, the steepness of the curve or how long it takes to go down, or there has to be something else. I'd rather just call it like a, I, I'd, I'd put it in the correction bucket or something because otherwise you, you end up comparing and i again i uh i'm shouting out the article it was called how long might the next bear market last name of the article um mark holbert and I, this is not against the article per se this is just what what it raised for me is some of the some of the time periods that are being compared in this article i don't feel like should be compared because 2000 isn't the same as 1998 like this, the bear market started in the year 2000 in March of 2000 is when the, the bubble burst or the, the peak happened, I should say, and the bear market started. What happened in 1998 was just a short term correction, no matter how but big they, it was. But they both went down 20%. Now, I like I think you want more precision, maybe because you could have a bear market that goes down 37% and a bear market that goes down 21%. And those could happen at different steepnesses. And you're saying it might not be fair to compare the bear market that went down 37% over two years. You're not saying that? Well, the over two years part I am, but it's not the percentage. I think I would call anything, whether it goes down by 10% or 90%, if it came back within X period of time, you can call that six months. You can call that a year. I'd still just call it oh, a you correction. You just want to exclude certain periods from analysis. Yeah, like I, I just exclude 1998. I don't think that was a bear market. And you in would 1998, exclude 2022. Within, yeah, I, I exclude 2020. I don't think that was a bear market. Wow. I mean, this is really nerdy financial talk. Congrats, we've achieved <laughs> something here. Isn't uh, that what we do? <laughs> apparently. 
I think we might should we should bring Mark on the show, and you should tell him that you think his analysis sucks. No, I didn't see say, how that goes. I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. I, it just it just raised for me. Do you feel differently though? Like, do you think that that like last year should be called a bear market? It just doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> like, I get what you're saying, and I think as I look at this analysis, I think I would like. As an analyst, I'd be like, oh, you know, there's some abnormalities that I'm probably going to exclude to improve my results. But I think when you write financial in the financial media for like the masses, it's kind of like you don't want to have to spend the first three paragraphs of your article explaining that you changed the well-known terminology that people have been talking about for 100 years. No, but okay, I hear you. But I will say if the if one of the thematic takeaways that you want to be had is that the height of a of valuation does not necessarily dictate the depth or length of bear market. Yeah. That you should make sure that you're comparing apples to apples in this case. Because if you say, look at the valuations that existed in 1998, they didn't lead to a, a big bear market. You go, well, hold on. Let's just fast forward 18 months. And yes, they did. Like that is the, the, like, as but as long as you call that a bear market, then you can say, sure, like that's true. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And if I had um, an analyst bring this to me, I would, that would probably be some of my first pieces of feedback yeah. is let's make sure it's more like apples to apples and then we'll get uh, better conclusions as a result of that. So let's redo the study, dude. Sorry for my nerdy rant. I, no, I'm, like I'm actually not. I'm really not. I'm not sorry for it. Because I want I think this is an interesting topic. And I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I read on this. And I was like, I'm glad Mark brought this up. I think it's worth looking at and reading. And then I was kind of like, but that definition, it's always kind of, I think, bothered me a bit, that that definition. <laughs> and then this is probably why. But look, yeah. it's just the 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 analyst in me. Yeah, I like it. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. Come get some stickers. Hit us up. We'll shoot you some stuff. Don't forget your um, email address. And we are generously going to cover the cost of stamps here, I think, until we can't afford it, which could be soon. Well, if stamps.com you know, starts raising its weights, then no. <laughs> now that they're acquired by a private equity firm, we're going to have to hand deliver. Exactly. So at Skippy Dougals on Twitter, skippydougals at gmail.com. Always up for listener mail. Thank you and rate and review the podcast. Peace.